from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? In our lifetime, the U.S. relationship with Russia has been everything from allies to enemies. We've had cold wars. We've competed in a race for space. But things can change. Now, we cooperate in space. But here on Earth, mm, not so much. The relationship has become even more complicated in the last half decade. You've been hearing about, well, the U.S. position on cyber hacks, Putin and his methods, and even election meddling. But here on Meet Me in the Middle, we like to see what other drivers there may be in any challenge, and this sensitive subject is no different. Look, I know you've got an opinion, but do you really know anything about Russia, really? Do you know why we have this difficult relationship? Do any of us really understand what drives Putin or the Russian people for that matter? And has the U.S. been smart about how we engaged with Russia, especially during Putin's rule? Is it possible that Americans can ever be guilty of being a bit like a bull in a china shop? You know, we do create our own brand of propaganda here in the U.S., but have you ever stopped to wonder how Russian people feel when they see how we love to make them the bad guy in our books, our movies that play all over the world, even on TV shows and news networks? Have we stopped long enough to try to understand who and what we're really dealing with? What do Russian people really think when no one is watching? Shouldn't you know more about who they are and how they feel and why they seem to have an adversarial relationship with us? You know, we love to talk on the show about how we've got the person who wrote the book on it. Well, here once again we have just that. The author of The Definitive View of Putin and Putin's Russia. This is part one of our series to understand Russia, its drivers, its people, and its leaders with a few thoughts on our actual role in this situation and where we could take it from here. This is Politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. But first, my co-host again is Jane Albrecht, an international trade attorney who represented U.S. economic and business interests to high-level government officials in many countries. But she worked especially closely with Russia in the 1990s, when Russia was opening up and experiencing huge political, economic, and social changes. Her experience will no doubt come in handy today. She's a member of the U.S. Supreme Court Bar, and she's been involved with several U.S. presidential campaigns. Hey, Jane, how you doing? Always good to be here and delighted to have you, Timothy. And our special guest, Professor Timothy Fry. He's an American political scientist, and he's the Marshall D. Shulman Professor of Post-Soviet Foreign Policy and Chair of the Department of Political Science at Columbia University. He's also the author of several books about Russia, but most recently released Weak Strongman, The Limits of Power in Putin's Russia. This is going to be interesting. Thanks for joining us, Professor Fry. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So is our view of Russia any less a result of propaganda than Russia's view of the U.S.? Well, certainly, given the Kremlin's control over the media environment in Russia, it's difficult, but not impossible for Russians to gain an accurate view of what's going on in the outside world. I think in the U.S., it's less the propaganda or directed efforts to mislead people about Russia than reliance on easy stereotypes drawn from popular culture. So one of the things I try to do in the book is to put some nuance around our debate on Russia, which tends to reduce Russian politics under Putin to either thinking of Russia as an exceptional country that has a unique history and a unique culture and has never been a democracy, is never going to be a democracy, has always had an assertive foreign policy. And it's much more subtle than that. 
The other extreme we get is people trying to reduce politics in Russia to Putin's personality. And he must govern a country of 146 million people across 11 time zones. And clearly he's not doing it himself. So one of the things I try to do in the book is unpack how this big, complicated, messy place called Russia actually works. In your book, you mentioned that you were one of the guides that went to Russia and you were kind of explaining life here in the U.S. Tell us about that experience, if you would. It was the best job I'll ever have. And many who have been in this role before me share that opinion. The exhibits go back to 1959 with the kitchen debate between Khrushchev and Nixon, in which Khrushchev accused Nixon of exaggerating the level of wealth by having these appliances that were actually pretty standard fare in Russia. And I worked for 15 months in the Soviet Union in six cities, Tbilisi, in Georgia, Tashkent, in Uzbekistan, Irkutsk, St. Petersburg, in Magnitogorsk in Russia, and then Minsk and Belarus. And for most of the visitors at the exhibit, I was among the first Americans they had ever met. And they wanted to know everything from, is Michael Jackson still popular? To, I understand that you have this horrible plague in capitalism called unemployment, but I also understand that you have this thing called the want ads. How can both of these things be true? And I thought that was the kind of exchanges you would have where our guests were trying to understand what was going on in the outside world, recognizing that they were being fed a lot of propaganda, but they knew that some part of it was true and some part of it was false, but they didn't know which was which. And how did you feel they reacted to your description of American life? Well, some people were skeptical, certainly. One of the most effective tools we had, though, was when two of the exhibit guides would be gathered around a stand and we would hold different opinions on political issues and start a debate. Oh, that must have really blown their minds. To see representatives of the U.S. government debating issues about life in the U.S., about U.S. foreign policy, for them was really the best evidence that we weren't just blowing smoke. And typically, this would provoke a discussion among the people who had attended the exhibits where they would take sides and say, oh, no, the problem is that the, you know, the Soviets have built up all this military might and they're intimidating other countries. And then other people on the Soviet side would stand up for the Soviet government. And it was really enlightening for me to see Russian or Soviet society not as this unvariegated mass, but as a complicated society with divisions, with disagreements, just like any other society. And that really helps me to this day understand what's going on in Russian society. Jane? Who sponsored this program? Was it the State Department? Yeah, it was the State Department. And the Soviets had a parallel exhibit that traveled around the United States, but it was a much higher priority for the U.S. Department of State than it was for the Soviet side. And whenever there were negotiations about relations or staffing at embassies or cultural exchanges, this was always top priority for the United States. It was very well funded. It was beautifully designed. And it was glossy and bright and loud and shiny. 
all the things that Soviet design was not really known for. Mm -hmm. And many people who came to the exhibits came repeatedly. And we got to know people who would come not quite every day, but certainly several times. Did you feel like the program was a success? I think it was a tremendous success to this day. We canceled them after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And I used to say to our customers that I hope that the exhibits would end and they would be shocked uh, because we were having such a good time. We were learning so much. And I said, we don't have these similar exhibits with France. We don't have similar exhibits with Sweden. If we want to learn about Sweden or France, we go there. We allow them to come to our country. And we've reached a point now where if we want to learn about each other's countries, we can just go. And that's the best way. You know, another thing many people don't realize about Russia beyond the massive landmass that Tim alluded to is because it spans such a huge swath of the earth, there's a large number of minorities, great diversity of ethnic backgrounds within Russia. Yeah, in Russia is about 80% Russian, but in the North Caucasus in particular, there are dozens and dozens of different ethnic groups, each with their own language, each with their own culture. And even in Siberia, there are still indigenous groups there. And navigating this very complex society that is mostly Russian, but also has Tatars and Chechens. And historically, it's been difficult for the Russian state to create a stable government given the centrifugal forces, particularly in the North Caucasus. Do you feel like it's a peaceful coexistence? Are there stresses in those relationships between the different minorities? Well, there certainly are. Particularly Chechnya is the most repressive region within Russia, and it is largely ruled by Ramzan Kadyrov, who gets his authority directly from President Putin, and he's allowed to rule as if this is his own fiefdom. And it's difficult for central authority to penetrate daily life in Chechnya, given the large security service that Ramzan Kadyrov, who was a former warlord who made his name during the Chechen wars that took place in the 1990s and then into the early 2000s as well. But for the most part, particularly under Putin, efforts at secession or efforts even at decentralizing political power have largely come to naught. You raised exactly one question I wanted to ask, is that during the Yeltsin years, there was an effort to decentralize power, give more power to the regions, which became a little chaotic because all of these regional governors really want power. What is the status today? When Putin came in power, my understanding is there was more power taken back by the central government. But what is it today? How much power does the central government have? And what is the dance between the central government and the regional governors? In the Yeltsin period, the notion was from the central government to the regions to take as much sovereignty as you could swallow. That was the phrase that Yeltsin used. And they did. And governors became a very powerful force that blocked many of Yeltsin's initiatives. After Putin came to power and the size of the economy doubled, thanks to the great increase in oil prices that happened in his first two terms, Moscow's coffers became very wealthy. And this allowed them to usurp a lot of authority 
from the regional governors to the point now where we talk about Russian federalism. It's really federalism only in name rather than in substance. The governors have some areas of policy, often areas that the Kremlin doesn't want to deal with, like the coronavirus and health policy that are very difficult problems. And the central government has taken much of the revenue that the regions create, and they have really clipped the wings of these powerful governors over the last 15 years. But isn't Russia used to a strong central authority? Wasn't Yeltsin a bit of an aberration? Certainly, the collapse of the Russian central state in the 1990s was a rare event in Russian history. But one also has to ask, does it really make sense to govern this country of 11 time zones with different local traditions so centrally from Moscow, where it's an exaggeration to say that you know, the potholes in Alms get filled by decisions taking in Moscow. But I think all experts agree that the political system in Russia is centralized to such a degree that it is difficult to generate the kind of local, dynamic, economic environments that are really needed in the 21st century. Interesting. We'll be back with more of part one of our conversation with Professor Timothy Fry in just a moment. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to go back to another experience you talked about in your book to kind of get a little more flavor. You touched on experiencing 9-11 from Russia. Can you talk about that and how did that feel and what did you notice? Yeah, it was one of the most touching and troubling events to see the Twin Towers fall from a bar in Moscow called Uncle Sam's, which is a popular bar not far from Mayakovsky Square, not too far from the U.S. Embassy. And it was difficult to understand the true import from such a great distance. But over the next couple of days in front of the embassy, the U.S. Embassy, was this mountain of cards and candles and testimonials to the American people for the great loss that they had suffered. Russia has suffered as well from terrorism. The Chechen war that I alluded to earlier was brought home to Russians in a series of bombings in the Moscow metro, hijacking of Russian planes in the 1990s. And this outpouring of goodwill from the Russian people, not orchestrated by the Russian state, really touched me to my core. And the flip side of this was I was doing an interview with a member of the Russian Central Bank for a different project several days later. And immediately he was empathetic and expressed great condolences for the losses around 9-11. He encouraged the U.S. and Russia to work together to root out terrorism. But then he finished his speech by saying, well, you wanted to be the only superpower. Uh, 
And that little dig was enough to remind me of the great hurt that the collapse of the Soviet empire still carried then and still carries today. Did you get the feeling that they blamed the U.S. partially for the fall of the Soviet Union? Well, there is a stream of thought within Russia that the fall of the Soviet Union was an inside job and Gorbachev was in on it. And there's great conspiracy thinking. But I think most people look at the fall of the Soviet Union and they see a system that they recognize didn't work either. They recognize how bizarre it really was to have a system where people were not allowed outside of the country, save for rare exceptions. And people had no thought that this would be possible for most of them, that this was an economy that provided bare basics, but was so regimented and was failing to provide increases in standards of living as it had in past generations. And also many people in the Soviet Union were not Russian. The Uzbeks, the Ukrainians, the Baltics, they were very glad to see the Soviet system fall. So most people looking back on the Soviet experience recognize that it was really a flawed experiment. Timothy, you really touched on something that's important that I think a lot of Americans don't understand. When you had the opening up of Russia, which at the same time meant the demise of the Soviet Union, eventually certain states breaking off, on top of the huge economic and political and social changes they were experiencing, this was a great blow to many Russian people. And just like, as I've explained here, if all of a sudden, we often joke about it, but if Texas uh, became its own country in California and everybody wanted to be their own thing and it happened, the Russians were going through that. And the United States at the time didn't understand that. Unfortunately, I believe the policy in the early 2000s was terribly mistaken. The policy of the Wolfowitz and the Bush administration was, now we're the only 800-pound gorilla, so let's remake the world in our image, rather than working with them and helping them through this difficult transition. Yes. If you think of the UK and France after colonialism and the difficulty they had in readjusting their position on the global stage, you know, the end of the British Empire was a great shock to Britain. And you had a similar event in Russia, which coincided with the collapse of the Russian state and just the ability to provide basic public goods, pick up the trash, collect the taxes, administer justice. At a time of hyperinflation, remember 1992, 1993, inflation is over 1,000%, hard for us to imagine. And political institutions were really up for grabs at the time. Yeltsin had been elected president. The boundaries between the presidency and the legislature were not well drawn, and there was great conflict between the two. So from a observer's perspective, for a political scientist like me, this was fascinating to watch. As a participant, I'm sure it was extremely, extremely difficult for the Russian people. So I think I understand where that guy was coming from when he said, but you wanted to be the only superpower. We've got to remember what the U.S. was saying and doing at that time. Yeah, I think that notion of, of hubris is something that a lot of Russians take a perverse sense of enjoyment from. If you look at Russian public opinion data, there's an interesting nuance that when the U.S. flexes its muscles abroad, 
often support for the United States goes down and support for the Russian government goes up a little bit, not a lot. It's not a big effect. But there is still that notion of Russians still see themselves as a great power. And in certain respects, they are. They are a nuclear superpower. They are a military superpower. Their sheer geography means that they are a player from Alaska to Japan to China through the Central Asian states to the North Caucasus and Turkey to Eastern Europe. Now, Russian military might is a pale imitation of Soviet military might, but it's far more, of course, than what Yeltsin had in the 1990s. So I often say that Yeltsin would look at Russia's current military position with delight, while Brezhnev would look at it in a state of panic. When we come back, I'd like you to walk us through Putin's rise to power. We'll be back in about 30 seconds. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. We're back with Professor Timothy Fry. Tim, do me a favor and take us through a quick tour of Putin's rise to power, and then I'm going to ask you about 2014 after that. So Putin is very much an unlikely president of Russia. He served in the KGB in East Germany, in Dresden, in a not particularly impressive post. He worked in the Leningrad city government, where he demonstrated great loyalty to the mayor of Leningrad, then St. Petersburg. Some of his colleagues managed to move to St. Petersburg and brought him along with them. Yeltsin chose him largely because he had demonstrated great loyalty to the mayor of St. Petersburg. Something about $100 million missing or something like that? Well, there was also this. When he was in city government in St. Petersburg, $100 million went missing in a food for export scam where $100 million was sent abroad and food was supposed to come into St. Petersburg that never arrived. He almost was dismissed from his post. Only the intervention of the mayor of St. Petersburg at the last moment saved his skin. After his move to Moscow, he had various positions in the presidential administration. He was then named head of the successor to the KGB, uh, known as the FSB, the Federal Security Services. And this was a surprise move. He was not someone from the upper echelon who had served for a long time in the KGB. And most people didn't know who he was. He was not a public figure at all. And when Yeltsin decided that he was going to step down, he started to interview possible successors. Surprisingly, Putin made a good impression on him because Yeltsin was not a fan of the KGB or its successor, the FSB, and tried to clip its wings. But Putin made a good impression on him. Yeltsin named him prime minister, which kind of eased the path for Putin when Yeltsin stepped down so that he was seen as the anointed successor of Yeltsin. And, you know, he won election in 2000, but largely on the support from the former Yeltsin coalition. 
and the security services, too. Then he had the benefit of rising oil prices, right, for his first term? Yeah. We know of Ivan the Terrible in Russian history. We know of Peter the Great. One of my colleagues calls Putin Vladimir the Lucky because (laughs) he comes into power in 2000, not only when oil prices are on the rise from historic lows in the 1990s. And one of the great difficulties Yeltsin faced that's very much underappreciated is their main source of government revenue was oil and gas. And these were at historic low prices. So Putin comes into power. Gas and oil prices reach historic highs. Russian currency underwent a devaluation in 1998, which boosted exports. Also, the real hard work of building a market economy had largely been done in the 1990s. So whatever you want to say about Yeltsin, Putin inherited an infrastructure of government and a market that he did not have to create himself. But the citizens credited him with a rising economy and condition. In every country, it's good to be in power. It's good to be the president when the size of the economy doubles and living standards soar. To his credit, Putin managed the inflow of petrodollars relatively well. He didn't just spend them on vanity projects, which often happens, or steal all of them, which also often happens. But he was also very lucky Mm -hmm. in that his timing really allowed him to gain incredible financial resources that he was then able to use to consolidate political power, first by centralizing financial flows to run through the Kremlin and to weaken the regional governors. And then he began to take on the oligarchs who had previously been thought of as all powerful. And Putin began to expropriate them, take away their assets. And this was a moment in which the Russian autocracy was really built. And ironically, it was built by a leader who at the time was quite popular. I was going to say, to add one thing to that, he started going after the oligarchs right away, namely Berezovsky and Guzinski, who controlled the media. And Berezovsky originally had supported Putin and, of course, found out that that was a mistake. And you're right. Then later on, he went after the rest of the oligarchs. But those were Yeltsin's oligarchs. That's right. He replaced them with his own oligarchs. One of my colleagues calls them silovarks which are Siloviki are the strong men, the security services. And it's a nice play on word because it captures this phenomena in Russia that has only gained steam under Putin is these heads of the security services, the police, the successor to the KGB, the FSB, the Department of Defense, the investigative committee, who have grown fantastically wealthy by using their powers of coercion to expropriate economic assets Mm -hmm. and engage in hostile raiding in the most literal sense of the word. So here you had a guy who had a 60 plus approval rating. And then all of a sudden, let's jump to 2014, the annexation or taking over of Crimea, which, uh, as you said in your book, wasn't just exciting to the citizens of Russia because they had a new vacation spot. It was actually exciting because it showed that In so many words, Russia was back. Now, after that, of course, the U.S. and other countries decided to put sanctions on Russia for that, which in fact made Putin's approval rating rise to over 80 percent, right? It actually backfired. 
actually, if we take a step back, Putin's great success in his first few terms was economic progress for everybody. Poverty fell, growth was rapid, living standards soared. His popularity started to fall after the protests of 2011 and 2012. And the events of 2014 and the annexation of Crimea were not done to boost his ratings. They were largely done to signal Russians' impatience with what they saw as Western encroachment into Ukraine and to secure a naval asset in the Crimea. And that caused an enormous increase in support for Putin. Even people who had not supported Putin in the past came around to support him. And then the sanctions were put in place. But one of the studies that I did found that if you remind people about the economic sanctions and then ask them about their support for the Russian government, you really don't get any change compared to just asking them about the Russian government without giving them information about the sanctions. Remind them about the annexation of Crimea and then ask them about their support for the Russian government. You get this massive increase. So the increase in popularity was really generated by the annexation of Crimea and the sanctions really play a smaller role in affecting Russians' attitude towards the Russian government. What the sanctions do, however, is reduce support for the U.S. government among Russians. So talk about some of the moments that the U.S. approached, perhaps with the wrong guiding principles, and we could have done a better job. So a couple of points. In some ways, the U.S.-Russian relationship over the last 20 years is a result of the collateral damage taken by U.S. foreign policy in arenas outside of Russia and even outside of Europe. Two events that really spoiled the Kremlin's view of the possibility of cooperation with the United States were the invasion of Iraq under President Bush. This was something that, if you remember, was opposed by France and Germany and vehemently opposed by Russia. After 9-11, President Putin was one of the first to call Bush II and offer condolences and offer to jointly try to fight terrorism. And there was some progress in warming U.S. business relations with Russia. Oil companies had a more welcome position in the first decade of Putin's rule than in the second decade of Putin's rule. But the invasion of Iraq was a shock for Putin that demonstrated the extent to which U.S. power could be used far from its borders to topple non-democratic government. The second event that had a big impact was the intervention in Libya, which the Russians to this day claim that the U.S. overstepped its boundaries as written in the U.N. decision to allow intervention into Libya And Russia claims that the U.S. and France and the Western alliance use that as a means to try to put their own people in power and to topple Gaddafi. And these two events really soured the Kremlin on relations with the United States and really caused a sense of fear in the Kremlin for just sheer U.S. military might. Another decision that I think has proved problematic is in 2008, the Bush administration, I don't mean to pick on the Bush administration, but after the Russians' war with Georgia, 
Ukraine and Georgia appealed to NATO to begin the process of becoming a member of NATO. And this was something that Russia was opposed to. Russia had accepted NATO expansion in Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, and in the Baltics as inevitable and something they could not do much about. But Georgia and Ukraine were seen as different. The Bush administration managed to make the worst of the whole situation by convincing NATO to issue a statement that Georgia and Ukraine would become part of NATO someday, but without saying when or without saying what the terms would be for them to join. So this made Ukraine and Georgia unhappy because they wanted faster progress in a timetable. It made Germany and France unhappy because they were opposed to having Ukraine and Georgia enter into NATO because there are great risks in being asked to guarantee the sovereignty of another NATO member country. It divided the Bush administration and it made the Russians very, very nervous. And that to this day, they point to this issue as one where, well, you know, you say Ukraine is going to join NATO at some point, and they have used this to try to justify some of their actions towards Ukraine. So that was a, an attempt to try to split the difference that made everybody unhappy. I agree with you, Timothy. I mean, you've detailed it, but I think that the policies of the U.S. government starting in 2000 when George W. Bush came into power for those next eight years were about as bad and incorrect policy towards Russia as we could have had at the time. And to me, that set the groundwork why we have devolved into yet another Cold War. Yeah, this is without even saying the decision to leave the uh, ABM treaty as well. Now, Russia is not blameless in the worsening of relations. Of course. But one thing we need to be careful about is what political scientists call the fundamental attribution theory, which is a fancy way of saying when there are two people in a bargaining situation, as we have with Moscow and Washington, where one side explains their behavior by their circumstances, and they explain the behavior of the other side by their intrinsic features. So Moscow says, of course I had to take the, uh, the, to Crimea. Look at the situation I was in. And the U.S. looks at that situation and says, well, that's just the kind of guy that Putin is, and they are just intrinsic features of Russian foreign policy that are guiding it. And vice versa, where the U.S. says, look, we're trying to bring democracy to Iraq. We're trying to get rid of a brutal dictator named Saddam Hussein. We were doing this because of the circumstances we faced, whereas the Kremlin says, no, this is just something inherent in Washington's foreign policy, where it's trying to dictate policy abroad. So we need to try to figure out what motivations are driven by circumstances that can be changed and which ones are driven by inherent features of our political systems. Join us next week for part two in our in-depth conversation on the U.S.-Russia relationship with Timothy Fry. Thank you to our producer and editor, Joey Salvia, music for Meet Me in the Middle, composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick, and the executive producer for this episode is Stuart Halpern. Kirko Media. Media for your mind.